arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Well, Banachek's an insurance investigator who collects 10% of whatever is lost or stolen. And uh, the first uh, thing we had, almost a million dollars in gold, so we made a lot of money. Uh, and it's going to show something being lost or stolen on camera in the first show uh, in a football stadium, 50, 60,000 people, there's six television cameras on it. A man is running around and four guys tackle him and they get off and he's gone, leaving nothing but a football and a helmet. And you go from there. And we go on from there. For 90 minutes, we find out how that was done. Finding out how it was done. A great statement by George Papard. Too bad Banachek, due to Papard's divorce, didn't go on for a longer time. What I like about Banachek was his ability to break down components into a concise statement as to what exactly happened in a crime. This is what Kell is doing in the Beach House story. Like Banachek, the crimes are laid out, but proving what happened is the key. And proving logically what happened will lead to the killer. But the killer is clever. The killer is stout. The killer is deadly. Episode 4 of Beach House is beginning now. Chapter 22. Mary Ellen protested when a distraught dandy refused to go swimming. The tiny pool proved a nifty swimming hole for youngsters in Bradenton and the surrounding mountain towns. Kids leaped from the rocks and cannonballed into the clear, cool water. Mothers and aunts gathered in a shaded area offshore and bragged about their children's great accomplishments during the summer, but most anticipated school starting a few weeks from now. Danny reluctantly shuffled off to the water's edge. Kathleen's chatter with a few friends sent Mary Ellen back to the blanket with her daughters. She hugged both girls as the sun warmed her face. Her thoughts returned to Tony in the good times, and she could almost feel his hand as they walked Binghamton Beach in the twilight. Back then she could talk freely, unrestrained by hidden innuendos and a list of unanswered past grievances. He always told her how much he loved her and everything had disintegrated. Kathleen's tone was clear and precise, unfettered by any substantive challenge in her life. Unlike her sister, Mary Ellen's head was cluttered. She meandered in and out of sleep and wondered where Kell's investigation of Sue Lee had led. He had not checked in with her since yesterday morning, unusual for him, and within her cavalcade of worries, she prayed for his safety. Mosey! Kathleen's voice grew louder as she held Mary Ellen's shoulder. Mary Ellen forced open her eyes. Mosey! Ah, the sun feels so good. We're going to a church supper tonight. There should be some games and great food. You want to go? I don't know. She wanted to close her eyes and drift back into the sunlight's warm security. I'm tired. You need to get out. Be among people. I know, she said, sitting up. Half of me wants to run away, but if I isolate myself, everything just gets worse. I'm trapped in my own self-pity, Kathleen. I'll take that as a yes, said her robin-haired sister. She looked over at her long-framed daughter, still asleep on the gray blanket. Stability would collapse without Tony's influence in their life. 
She heard Danny arguing with his friends in the water as she fell back on the blanket and her hands tightened. Fatigue and emotional overload prevented her from dealing with it. At least Tony knitted the family together, even when things were strained. How would she face life alone? A warm shower and a change of clothes gave her a temporary reprieve from the emotional undercurrents tearing her apart. She looked at the dark circles, shading her haggard blue eyes. The bright red jersey and clean washed jeans contributed to her fresh attitude. It was time to take control and not let the family falter. Somehow she would ease her daughter's pain and steer Danny in the right direction. Tony would have wanted his family to remain strong. She opened the bedroom door. Kathleen and Don both turned in the kitchen. Sandy talked with Shane and Angie on the deck as Danny threw a baseball with Alan outside. Mosey, you look great. Good facade. I might as well put up a good facade. Better to act it out than to get stuck within myself. I do that in business all the time. You just act like you're having a good time with the client, and uh, even though you might want to be back here in the mountains. Can I get anything for you, Mosey? No, I'm okay. Look forward to getting out. Well, that's good, said Kathleen, hugging her. Kathleen's touch infused Mary Ellen with a security her own thoughts could never provide. Mary Ellen smiled and acted perky. I want to keep busy. If you need someone to work around the house, rake the yard, make dump runs... How about jogging? Come jogging with us in the morning, said Kathleen. I may just start that. You mind if I go in the other room and use my cell phone? She had told them nothing about Sue Lee and how Kel was attempting to prove her complicity in four accidental deaths, including her own husband's death. I want to call Kel in the trailer. Sure, go ahead, said Don. Mary Ellen walked into the hall and took out her cell phone. She pushed in the long-distance number and tapped her foot on the floor as the line rang. Four previous calls had resulted in mounting confusion. He could have returned to the trailer by now. Maybe he had uncovered more information and was adding to the case against Sue Lee. Or maybe he should have just bought a new cell phone. As she lowered her phone back into her pocket, she feared something had happened to him. Her hands shook as she leaned against the wall. Kel was armed and had spent his entire adult life involved in investigations in the heart of Buffalo. More than likely, he'd be back at the trailer soon and have information incriminating Sue Lee. She held her head and started up the hall. Okay, let's go. Don turned from the sliders. You talk to your friend? Not back. I should think you'd eventually want to go back to the beach house, said Don, opening the door. The kids were already in his SUV. Oh, I don't know. Really? You need to erase what's happened, Mosey. The only way you can do that is to grieve. Begin new memories. You sure you're not a psychologist? She asked. I know you, and I know you have to go on, said Don. I know. Mary Ellen dipped her head and climbed in the back seat, and Don shut the door. She knew he was right, but she did not know how she would ever rebuild a new life. The white steeple of the New England church poked through the oaks and maples at the top of the hill. Tents were set up next to the amusement rides and several carnival games in the open field. Mary Ellen stayed behind the green and white striped tent with Kathleen and a few of the women from town. She finished a second bowl of tapioca pudding and licked the homemade whipped cream off the cold spoon. Mmm, this is good. You want some more, dear? asked Henrietta Sneed, a stout woman with blue curly hair. 
No, I'd better stop, she said, taking another sip of coffee. There's always plenty of food at church events, said Henrietta. Well, no argument here. She looked to her left as Danny carried a stuffed black and white panda bear into the tent. Wow! Hey, Mom, look, I sunk the basketball. Nobody else did it. His dark eyes brightened, but she knew he wanted to tell Tony, and he wanted Tony with him right now. I'm going to win everything, everything. You just do your best. That's what Dad used to tell me, he said. Thanks, Mom. She squeezed his hand. You go get him, sport. Danny hugged her and then retreated with his friend back to the carnival. Mary Ellen caught Kathleen's eye. He's a good boy. You'll make it, Mosey. You'll make it. Thanks. Kathleen stretched. Well, I don't know about you ladies, but I need to walk off what I just consumed. Mary Ellen stood, grabbed a brownie off the table, and stuck it in her mouth. I'm going to weigh a thousand pounds by the time I leave here. Well, it never stopped me, said Henrietta. The woman laughed and moved through the open tent flap. Mary Ellen surveyed crafts and additional games ahead. I'd like to look at the crafts. Sure, sure, said Kathleen. Maybe try the frog ride. Frog ride? asked Mary Ellen. Kathleen pointed to a small roller coaster with six frog seats. Oh, no, I'll stay on solid ground. Thank you. I'll treat. No way. Mary Ellen shook her head. Across the field at the beginning of the church cemetery, Shane and Angie walked with Sandy and another local girl near the gravestones. Kathleen held her wrist. It's good they talk. I know, but I just worry about them. They don't say much. They're teenagers. What do you expect? Mary Ellen nodded, and they moved past the craft tables. She checked Danny at the basketball hoop game. You know, the worst part of this is going to come later, when they're back in school after some months go by and they realize Tony isn't around anymore. Have somebody good talk to them, Mosey. There are a lot of quacks out there. Yeah, that's what I mean. She looked down at a complex rendition of a house composed solely of wooden matches. Four hundred dollars! A little steep, said Kathleen. It must have taken years to complete. And pay off, quipped Mary Ellen. She made Kathleen and the others laugh. Kathleen held her wrists. I guess you look at it more as a donation to the church. Mary Ellen nodded and glanced back to the basketball game. Two other boys were trying to sink the basketball through the small orange hoop. She checked the other game, but she didn't see Danny. Where's my son? What's the matter? I don't see Danny, she said, stepping away from the craft table. Oh, I'm sure he's just wandered along with the other boys, Mosey. Mary Ellen crossed the asphalt along the main tent. She surveyed the area like a secret serviceman preceding the president, first returning to the greasy-haired guy at the basketball hoop. Have you seen my son? I see a lot of people, ma'am. Short kid, white face, dark hair, crew cut, she said in rapid succession. Yeah, he was here. Didn't win this time. Good shot, though. Well, where did he go? Turned to his left. They were walking down the back of the, toward the church. I'm busy with the game here. I'm sorry. Mary Ellen looked at Kathleen as she approached. The church? Mosey, he's all right. He's just being a boy. Mary Ellen trotted toward the clapboard church, but panic overtook her. A few people strolled under the churchyard's oaks and maples, and cars were parked to the street. But she did not see Danny as she faced the dark church windows. Excuse me, she said to an older couple strolling the grounds. Yes? 
said a gray-haired woman. A little boy, a little boy about ten years old. Did you see him? Her taller husband shook his head as a dog continuously barked around the other side of the church. His name is Danny. Well, we just got here, said the woman. I have to find Danny, said Mary Ellen as Kathleen hurried around the building. Any luck? No, they haven't seen him. I'm sure he's just playing, said the woman, smiling, and she continued along with her husband. Mary Ellen closed her eyes. Oh, God, where is he? Let's check the church. Right, right, the church. She ran ahead and thundered up the stairs. With her hands on the wide wood handles, she pulled open the wooden doors and stepped into the narthex. Her voice echoed along the colorful stained glass windows. Danny! Danny! Are you in here? Kathleen appeared in back. Is he here? No, he's not answering. It's her. She has my son. Her? Asked Kathleen, squinting and looking Mary Ellen in the eye. Her. She killed Tony. She killed Trombley. She killed Rankin and Latrobe, and now she has my son. Listen, Mosey, I don't know what you're talking about. Mary Ellen sandwiched tears between her lashes. She ran up the main aisle, checking all the varnished pews as she passed. Maybe Danny was playing a trick on her, or maybe he was back outside at the games. She rounded the front pew and could hear Kathleen calling from the nave as she sprinted past the altar and into the darkened alcove's outside door. She burst into the evening light from the cement stairs and panned the churchyard. Another group of boys shot the basketball. She cased each ride, each game, and even the craft table, but Danny was not in the yard. Mary Ellen turned as Kathleen put her hand on her shoulder. Kathleen, Danny's not here. Where's the boy he was with? I think it was Kevin Berwick. No, I need to speak with a cop. As she again checked the churchyard, Mary Ellen was convinced Sue Lee had somehow found out she had taken her family to the Berkshires. She tried to regain her composure, convincing herself that Sue Lee would have no overt knowledge of the trip. I'm just so scared. Kathleen embraced her. Listen, we'll find Joe Wazinski. He was directing traffic earlier. Joe will know what to do, who to ask. Mary Ellen nodded as Kathleen also studied the grounds. She pointed to the parish hall's clapboards. The short-haired uniform officer smoked a cigarette and spoke with a couple of men from the parish. There's Wazinski. Come on. Oh, thank God, said Mary Ellen as they descended the steps and started back along the tent. Let me do the talking, said Kathleen. Okay. Holding her sister's hand, Mary Ellen skirted the craft table and traversed the extended parking lot. She could hear Wazinski and the other men speaking. Wazinski, a middle-aged man with a dark mustache and short silver hair, smiled as they approached. Hello, Kathleen. Enjoying the carnival? Well, Joe, we have a little problem. My sister's boy. His name is Danny, said Mary Ellen. Danny is missing. He's ten years old, and we can't find him, said Kathleen. Wazinski dropped his cigarette on the cement and snuffed it out. Well, what does he look like? Dark hair, dark eyes. Mary Ellen clutched Kathleen. No, not Danny. Not Danny. Danny's an innocent little boy. When was he last seen? asked Wazinski, putting on his police cap. Back at the basketball hoop, but they don't know where he is. Okay, okay said Wazinski in a soothing voice. We'll find your son. Everything will be all right. Kathleen, why don't you get your sister some coffee? Good idea. Need some help there, Joe? Asked one of the townies. 
Wazinski's voice faded as Kathleen walked with Mary Ellen back yeah, toward let's the tent. Not make this too obvious. Get a half a dozen men. Mary Ellen was secure with the idea of someone else assuming responsibility for finding Danny. Her thoughts flipped between Sue Lee lurking in Bradenton and Danny and his friend merely exploring the area. Kathleen sat at the tent table as Don appeared at the side flap. He spoke in undercurrents and glanced at Mary Ellen as Kathleen mixed the coffee. Mary Ellen clutched a large panda bear. Mosey? Mosey, said Don as he moved ahead of Kathleen. I'm going outside with Joe Wazinski. I'm sure Danny is just being a boy and snooping around. Well, what about that Berwick boy? Don looked at Kathleen as she set the coffee on the table. Danny was with Kevin Berwick. Okay, we'll find them both. He squeezed her wrist and spun back toward the flap. Oh, God, where is Kel? I need to talk to Kel. Your neighbor on the beach? asked Kathleen. Yes. Mary Ellen lifted the coffee to her lips, but her queasy stomach caused her to lower the cup back to the table. I want to call Kel. The cell signal is bad. She grabbed the panda bear and exited the tent ahead of her sister. Maybe Kel had answers now or could at least confirm Sue Lee was still at Binghamton Beach. She looked to her left. Wazinski and nearly a dozen men buzzed around the carnival and talked with people at the games and the rides. Other men were down by the cemetery. Wait, where's Shane and Angie? Kathleen's face tightened back at the table. Her words were compressed and sharp. I don't know. I don't see them down back. My kids! She screamed and many people at the carnival turned. My kids! That woman has my kids! What woman? asked Kathleen, grabbing her shoulder. Mosey, it's all right. No, no, she cried. She's going to kill my kids just like she killed Tony. An older man rushed over. What happened? Mary Ellen screamed. Oh, God, no. God, no. What woman? asked Kathleen, looking toward the cemetery. Sue Lee. Who is Sue Lee? She killed Tony. She killed him, just like she did the other guys. Sabotaged the ladder. Now she's followed me. I know she did. Kathleen pulled her closer and patted her hair. It's all right. We'll find them, Mosey. We'll find them. Chapter 23 The moon hid behind an intricate pattern of leaves and sent bright triangular projections across the church parking lot. Mary Ellen turned from the window the coffee cup still firmly in her hand, and she watched the clock's red-minute hand sweep toward 2.30. For nine and a half hours, they had searched for the kids. The disappearance now brought in stations from Springfield, Massachusetts, and a half a dozen radio and print people. To the credit of the local and state police, the media contingent was kept at bay in a small house adjacent to the church. Mosey? Mosey? Mary Ellen looked up at her sister. If it's bad, I don't want to hear it, Kathleen. No, nobody knows anything. They've searched a five-mile radius. She took them away. You keep mentioning that Chinese woman, said Kathleen. She pulled up the chair next to Mary Ellen. Who is she? Korean. Whatever. Who is she? Why do you think that she took your kids? Mary Ellen closed her eyes. It's a long story, and no one's going to believe it. I told Wazinski, but he took off with the state cops. I thought he might make a call for me to Binghamton Beach, but nobody there seems to believe me either. Then you tell me. Mary Ellen set the cold coffee on the table. 
She began with Sue Lee's background in Maryland, and for the next 15 minutes detailed every incident, beginning with Latrobe. Kathleen nodded politely until she spoke about the car falling on Trombley. The additional information about Cal and the ramps in Maryland seemed to ignite her curiosity. Mary Ellen relayed Kel's suspicions about Sue Lee, rendering a second ladder unsafe and replacing it with Tony's original ladder. What about the local police in Binghamton Beach? Mary Ellen chuckled. <laughs> right. Unless they had any proof, they won't believe Kel. He was given an early retirement because he didn't have evidence in a case. And now Hawkins, the Binghamton chief, won't believe anything he says. And they've dismissed what I was saying. These guys out here are just too busy. Where is Kel now? Good question. He was supposed to be in her hometown, looking for clues. He thought she might have bought the ladder and the ramps back there. Well, you have to call Binghamton Beach again, said Kathleen. Where are my kids? What did she do with my kids? I don't know. Kathleen seemed to agree with Mary Ellen's way of thinking. But why take the risk? She's very clever. Mary Ellen stood and leaned on the table. The flashlights shone through the moonlit wood, but she feared her children were hundreds of miles away. I'm going to kill her. I'll kill her, and she'll never kill again. Kathleen stood and immediately tried to hold her, but Mary Ellen slipped away. Mosey, you're just... I'm just what? You're in an emotional frenzy. These feelings will pass. Oh, sure. Woman murders my husband and now has my kids, and I'm going to let these feelings pass? Oh, no, she said, smiling. It's all over for Miss Sue Lee. When I find her, I'll kill her. Wasinski and three police officers moved through the parish hall doors. Mrs. Fresco, my name is Lieutenant McNair. Sergeant Wasinski has mentioned a woman in Binghamton Beach. You haven't found them, have you? No, ma'am, we haven't. Mary Ellen lip-smiled and crossed her arms. Then she rolled her eyes as she spoke. If, by the grace of God, they're still alive, they might be back there with her. The woman? Sue Lee, said Kathleen. I've been trying to tell you people for nine hours. You tell me what you know about this woman, Mrs. Fresco, and I will personally make a call to Maryland. What about the search? We have over 100 people checking every square inch of this town. Now you tell me what you know. Mary Ellen leaned back in the jeep. The sun cut across her eyes, and with the ferocity of a bear just awakened in the cave, the mountain wind assumed a biting chill. Wazinski, now in his denim jacket and jeans, shifted up the long hill and into Bradenton. Kids had not been located, and the Binghamton police found Sue Lee asleep in her condo two hours ago. She was questioned extensively about the children and denied having anything to do with their disappearance. The cops also found her Mustang cold in the garage, and she had not worked at Barnacle Bills the night before. But they still brought her downtown. Let me get this straight, said Mary Ellen into the wind, whipping through the open jeep. The tracking dogs found no trail. There were no witnesses and no sign of foul play. Yeah, I don't understand it. I've been thinking about what you said about Sue Lee. And I thought about the distance from Bradenton to Binghamton Beach. She could have made it down there with time to spare. Well, I'm convinced that she did. And I'm convinced that she has them down there. They're not here. She's got them as insurance in case everything else collapses. Mazinski pulled onto the road shoulder. Okay, how does she lure your kids from separate locations at the carnival? 
What does she say to get them to leave? This just doesn't make any sense. Force, she said, realizing she was more angry than fearful. She knows Kel is on to her, and she wants to cover her little ass. Like bargaining chips. She knows Kel was on to something back in her hometown. Well, the cops can't find him, said Wazinski. That's not a good sign either. She knows Kel and I figured it out with the ladder and the ramps, and her killing the other men. Wazinski shifted back on the highway. You don't think she went after this Kel, do you? I am not sure. I don't know. They moved down a long, winding bend with pressure-treated ties and cables separating the gully from the road. A few branches already had bright red and orange leaves. Mary Ellen clenched her fist as she braced for a call from Sue Lee. The kids would be used to secure her a safe passage somewhere. Wazinski rolled in front of the three-story brick police station across from the new elementary school. He shut off the engine and pulled beside the curb. They both left the jeep and entered the station through the aluminum frame doors up front. Wazinski rounded the corner and someone buzzed them both inside. Hey, Joe, said a black-haired deputy with a pug nose. What's up, Ted? We just talked to Binghamton Beach. They released the woman. Insufficient evidence. Damn, I think Mrs. Fresco has a point here. The woman sounds dangerous. Ted shrugged his shoulders. Yeah, but she was asleep. So she says, said Wazinski. He looked at Mary Ellen. The fatigue was overtaking her. You all right, Mrs. Fresco? Yeah, just other than I haven't slept, I need to get back to my sister's house. Wazinski nodded. Anything else? Nope. That retired cop, Kel. What about him? asked Mary Ellen. Hasn't returned to his trailer. Her throat tightened and she prayed Kel had not met the same uncertain end as Sue Lee's victims. But she believed the kids were still alive and would be used as collateral once the evidence piled up. Wazinski escorted her out the front and tears glazed her eyes as she panned the forested hilltops. In the quietude of the late summer afternoon, she had lost everything important in her life. Tension threatened to snap what was left of her emotional fabric. She grabbed the side support and swung herself into Wazinski's jeep. The exact distance from the Berkshires to Binghamton Beach didn't matter as much as the time factor. Nine hours passed since the time the children were abducted until the time the Binghamton Beach cops knocked on Sue Lee's door. With the car still in the garage, she probably used the van. The maroon van. What was that? asked Wazinski as he shot down the side street toward Kathleen's house. Sue Lee had access to a maroon van. I don't know if she owned it or who it's registered to. I'm sure it was Marilyn Plates. How do you know this? Kel told me that a maroon van followed him in Delaware. But if somebody saw her take the kids... Oh, God, why is this happening? Wazinski turned into the driveway and the tears leaked out. What did I ever do to this woman? Wazinski held her shoulder. Listen, maybe you should just get some sleep. Let us take care of this. Wazinski, you know what the upshot is of all this? Nobody can prove anything. She's covered herself so well. No, you can't think like that. You can't. He looked her in the eye. I don't care how clever she is. Sooner or later, one mistake crops up. Or it may be an accumulation of mistakes, but it's enough to make the whole story unravel. And when it does, she'll know she's cornered. Maybe, or maybe she won't have any options left, said Wazinski. Come on, you need to get some rest. 
then promise you'll wake me. I'm going to get some sleep myself, but I'll make sure somebody calls from the station. She walked around the hood, and he helped her out and brought her toward the kitchen door. Dawn and Kathleen both rushed outside. Mary Ellen hugged her sister as the two men talked on the front porch. Wazinski said although it would be time-consuming, his department would attempt to question everyone at the church carnival. Here, he said, handing the panda bear to her. Kathleen thanked him and helped Mary Ellen toward the downstairs bedroom. The strain of staying awake all night and the emotional swell of having her children taken had decimated her. Kathleen helped her to the double-poster bed, but Mary Ellen fell forward. She felt a quilt or bedspread cover her body and then heard blinds clatter as the room darkened. Kathleen kissed her hair. The room spun slowly. She snuggled next to the bear and had trouble rationally thinking about anything. The sun cut through the edges of the drawn blinds. Mary Ellen closed her eyes again and rolled over. When she adjusted the pillow position, something crinkled underneath. Having only drifted out of sleep, her eyes still ached. She heard something. She leaned her head against the wall and picked up an 8 by 10 gray envelope and detected the faint odor of night sin. Her heart raced as she quickly ripped open the sealed flap. A large sheet of manila paper was pasted with magazine letters and formed a threatening message. My dearest Mary Ellen, your kids are alive. Have half a million ready before dawn at Beach House or they're dead. No cops. Your best friend. Oh my God. Light crawled up the wall and she pulled the blinds cord. She debated whether calling Wazinski, but figured any police involvement up here would result in a call to the Binghamton Beach cops. She couldn't risk endangering her children's lives. Sue Lee would kill the kids if anyone found out about the letter. She knew she would have to get to Marty and withdraw the money from the portfolio in Binghamton Beach. Carefully, she slipped into her shoes and tucked the envelope in her shorts. The afternoon sun covered an unfettered path across the backyard to the trees. Once in the woods, she could get back to the road and have a cab pick her up. With one quick twist, she unlocked the window clasp and checked the closed bedroom door before she raised the window. She imagined the kids in prison by Sue Lee in some hotel room around Binghamton Beach. With her thumbs and index fingers, she pinched the storm window screen and lifted the aluminum frame from its track. She held the bear and glanced at the door one more time before she stuck her legs out the open window. Once on solid ground, she lowered the blinds first and then the window and finally set the screen back in place. She bolted for the woods and was soon securely hidden in the maple and the hemlocks. With the envelope folded in her hands and the bear under her arm, she leaped through the wooded area as if she were a combat soldier on patrol. By plane, she could be in Binghamton Beach by 9 or 10 o'clock, but she'd at least have time to save her kids. Chapter 24 The wrinkled plastic bag dripped a clear liquid into a long tube connected at needlepoint into Kel's arm. He knew from the numbness the drugs were easing from the pain evident in his head, ribs, and legs. The nurse behind the bag turned as he sat up. Hey, where the hell am I? Mr. Kelly, you're awake. Damn right I'm awake. The last thing he remembered was snooping around Sue Lee's father's loft. The pipe cutter and the various tooling machines were stark images in his mind, under a single incandescent bulb. 
He had nailed Sue Lee with enough evidence for the cops to start looking into the case. Why am I in the hospital? Your accident. What accident? You know, your car in the river? My car was in the river. I have to get out of here, he said, moving his legs around. He grabbed at the sharp pain, moving across his lower ribs. Damn, I think you should stay in bed, Mr. Kelly. No, I need to get this damn thing out of my arm and I need to get to a phone, he said, scanning the little room. Doesn't this hospital have a phone? We can arrange to have one brought into your room on a per diem basis. Yes, yes, I have to call. Where am I calling? For a moment, he did not know whether Mary Ellen was at Binghamton Beach or with her sister in Massachusetts. He needed to talk to Hawkins and the rest of the Binghamton Beach police. Sir? Yes, get me a phone. He leaned back on the pillows as she left the room. It all made sense now. Sue Lee brought both the ladder and the ramps at the local hardware store. He pictured her driving back to her father's house by the river. The riverbank flashed into his head along with an uncertain anxiety. The river was so loud and so far down from the shed. She had made the proper cuts precisely. With Tony's ladder, the rungs were loosened sufficiently by the pipe cutter. As he climbed higher to paint the upper portions of the beach house, the pressure increased on the rungs. When the rungs collapsed, he fell 40 feet to his death. And somehow, they switched the ladder back. He wondered what happened to the second ladder. Where the hell am I anyways? he asked as the nurse returned. You're at St. Luke's Hospital in Charleston, and the phone will be here within an hour. Somebody just called the nurse's desk about you. I wish they had left their name. I was in Maryland. I don't remember any accident. Kel looked up at her. Somebody called? Male or female? Female, but she did it. She did this accident. Your car went over a river embankment. Kel sat up and found a comfortable position. You're lucky to be alive, Mr. Kelly. But how? How would I go over a river embankment? He sensed the churning water all around him, but he had no visual image. It's normal in most trauma cases like this not to remember the details before an accident. Sue Lee. She did it. She did it. Do you want me to call the officers back in here? Cops. Cops. Yes, I was a cop. Was. Get me the cops. Kel grit his teeth and held his left hand to his aching temple. You need to get them back here and I'll talk to the police in Binghamton Beach when that phone gets here. Binghamton Beach? Any cops, any cops, I don't care. This woman has committed murders. Who knows where she'll stop next? Somebody tried to kill you? Sue Lee. Tell them Sue Lee. Kel had no direct evidence that Sue Lee had tried to kill him. He sifted his brain for any recollection of the accident. He closed his eyes but still kept returning to the shed loft and all the tools. Every time he tried to venture ahead in time, he was blocked by the accident's tremendous shock. Yet he knew she was capable of anything now, and even though confined to a hospital bed, he was compelled to stop her at any cost. You listen to me, Hawkins, he yapped into the tableside phone. You send somebody up here to that house and shed, and you'll find all the tools right in there. Look, Kelly, you don't know what just happened. No. Mary Allen's kids are missing in Massachusetts. You've got her all stirred up, and she's blaming Sue Lee, said Hawkins. Where the hell are those kids? It's a damned wrong assumption, and I don't know where the kids are, but Sue Lee was sleeping in her condo when we went up to check. Kel moved his feet around the edge and fully sat up. Did you search the condo? 
Oh, the kids. Listen, I don't know what happened up in Massachusetts, but that woman would have to drive at 90 miles an hour to get back. Her car is in the garage and her engine is cold, buddy. Cal dared not share his feeling about Sue Lee's complicity in the accident. I think those kids are around here. And just where the hell are you? Not important, he said again, holding his ribs as a well-dressed man in a blue suit walked ahead of two younger guys also in suits. Mr. Kelly? Yes. I'm Detective Ed Farrell. I was on the scene when they pulled you out of the Cursage River. Kel nodded. I'm coming back to Binghamton Beach. Well, thanks for the warning. And I'm telling you, those kids are in the condo or somewhere in Binghamton Beach. And let me tell you, you harass Sue Lee and I'll lock you up. Kel looked at the receiver and then hung up. He gazed at Farrell's slick back hair. Thank you for coming over, Detective Farrell. I have no recollection of my accident. Well, you were close to drowning, but the position of the car and the angle saved you. How did it happen, Detective? I haven't got a clue. From what my people tell me, you drove off the embankment near an abandoned workshed. Car dropped 80 feet. Frankly, you shouldn't be alive. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. Farrell smiled and glanced at his men. According to the nurse, you're claiming, he said as he looked down at his notebook, a woman from Binghamton Beach, Maryland, may have contributed to your accident. Yes, sir. Well, I'm all ears, partner. Why don't you tell me how this alleged woman accomplished what you say she did? I take offense at what you say. There's no alleged woman. Her name is Sue Lee, and it's not just my accident. I have proof that she used that machine shop in the workshed to sabotage a ladder and a car ramp. Why? To make murder look like an accident. She's sick. Why would she come all the way up here from Binghamton Beach? Asked the young man behind Farrell. You check. She used to live in Haydenville, right in that house next to the shed. Bold accusations, said Farrell. Maybe, but it's time she was brought in for questioning. Yet, said Farrell, you can't remember how she pushed you into the river. I'm assuming she did, but you didn't see her. Isn't that correct? Yes, I can't remember what happened. Farrell moved around the bed. Listen, Kelly, we checked your background. You were fired, right? Well, early retirement because of inadequate evidence. So this stupid speculation means nothing to me, pal. No, he forced himself to sit up. I tell you, you can look for yourself. The tools are in there. Where's the ladder and the ramp? Asked Farrell. I don't know. Well, great. Kel leaned forward and looked into his gray eyes. Do you believe me or don't you believe me? I think you've been grasping at straws in some murder case along the bay. Kel pointed his finger at Farrell. Listen, Sue Lee killed Mary Ellen Fresco's husband and took her kids. Missing kids now, asked Farrell. You better stop that woman before more people are killed. Listen, why don't you get some rest, Mr. Kelly? I don't need any rest. What, has the whole world gone bananas? I'm sorry for what happened to you. Just back off. Be glad you're alive and let the police do their work. Those kids did nothing, he said as Farrell turned. And they're probably lost up in the hills there in Massachusetts. Now you get some rest. Dawn scurried across the living room and swiped the phone off the hook. Hello? Yes, my name is Walter Kelly. I'm a friend of Mary Ellen's. Mr. Kelly, yes, this is Dawn Ellis. I'm Mary Ellen's brother-in-law. She's been trying to track you down. It's awful what's happened up here. Well, I've had a few major league problems myself. 
The kids. What happened? Don choked on his words. They, they. Take your time. I know those kids like they were my own kids. We were at a church carnival when they disappeared, all three of them. We've been searching for over 24 hours. Mosey is still sleeping. Sue Lee. That's what Mosey said. But this Sue Lee is in Binghamton Beach. We checked with the police back there. No, I mean, Sue Lee is in Binghamton Beach now, but she tried to kill me. She must have the kids. Somebody has to do something. How could she have the kids? If she was up here, she'd have to drive back at bottleneck speed to get to Maryland, said Don. Listen, we're not talking about the International Space Station here. Figure out the time. I'm telling you, she did drive from Massachusetts to Maryland, and she has those kids. Why would she take the kids? When she learned I was still alive. I know she called the hospital checking on my condition. She's cornered. Oh, not right now, but she knows she will be. And she probably figures Mary Ellen knows. Don furrowed his brow and fell into one of the kitchen chairs. Knows what? Knows that Sue Lee caused Tony to fall from that ladder. Well, what proof do you have of that, Kelly? What? But she couldn't have driven back there. It's possible. We're talking no more than nine hours driving time, said Kel. How did she try to kill you? I can't remember. Got a head injury, but... I think the main thing is to find the kids, Mr. Kelly. I agree. I'm at the airport against doctor's orders, and I'm taking the next plane out of here. I'll call Mary Ellen when I get to Binghamton Beach. The line clicked, and Dawn stared at the phone and hung up. For a few minutes, he sat at the table and wondered about Sue Lee. He heard his own kids out back as Kathleen burst through the front door. She raised her brow. Anything yet? He shook his head and stared at the receiver. Nothing. Where are they? She looked toward the side bedroom. I'm going to wake Mosey, Donnie. I've got a gut feeling about this Sue Lee, but I just can't prove it. Listen, that retired cop, Kelly, he's alive. Said Sue Lee tried to kill him. He's on his way back to Binghamton Beach. Really? Maybe she did. Who knows? asked Kathleen. You'd think she's working with her brother. Kathleen raised her index finger. Or maybe just the brother is involved. She opened the bedroom door and stepped inside. Don wanted to sleep, but he knew the night would not end soon. Kathleen tripped on something in the bedroom and then raced out the door. Donnie! She's gone! Mosey's gone! Beach House by R.P. Fitton Chapter 26 Mary Ellen spotted the coastal lights only ten minutes before landing at Binghamton Beach. Even at night she recognized the familiar patterns and thought she had looped over the beach house. The plane pitched and yawed above the shoreline toward a linear stretch of blue runway lights. She closed her eyes as the craft neared the ground. Fears about her children were trapped within a confused frenzy, and she now wanted to call the cops when she landed. The plane touched down with a quick jolt. She squeezed the panda bear as the airplane whipped along the concrete. As they slowed near the approaching hangar, the tiny lighted terminal glowed in the night. She questioned whether Sue Lee was aware that she had returned to Binghamton Beach. She immediately checked for Sue Lee or the Mustang in the darkness beyond the airfield lights. Maybe the cops could help. She wanted her kids back. The image of the pasted letters on the white paper, tucked inside the gray envelope, remained vivid as she studied each person inside the terminal window. 
She was dealing with an unstable, psychotic mind, a person who now wanted to extort money and disappear. Perhaps calling the police was not a good idea. She opened the terminal door and activated her cell phone near the concession stand. A few cars lined the canopy outside the front doors. She quickly punched out a number to the local cab company, but then stopped. What if she were headed into a trap at the beach house? Suli could be waiting in the lurch. She closed her eyes, still clutching the phone, and then inhaled. In a shaky voice, she stared at her phone and then finished inputting the number. She has the kids. She needs some money. They advised her that a taxi was in the area. Mary Ellen was uneasy about loitering outside and remained near the automatic door. Again, she longed for outside help. The cops could figure a way around this situation. As professionals, they knew how to handle such delicate matters. But she shook her head as she surveyed the circular drive beyond the canopy. A few headlights passed through the blackness along the road leading from the airport. She checked for the taxi one more time, then retreated back inside. She tried Kel's trailer on her cell. The line rang three times, and then voicemail kicked in. She closed her eyes and slumped next to the phone. Kel's voice repeated and the machine beeped, and then she hung up. Her eyes ached as she held the edge of a support pole. Kel? Kel, where are you? Come on, Kel. A single set of car lights swung around the outside road and shined directly into the terminal. She carried the bear and the folded envelope to the door. The green station wagon taxi came to an abrupt stop under the canopy. The automatic door startled her. She walked slowly across the corrugated foyer mat, but her intuition told her to stay away from the beach house. What can I bring you? asked the little driver. Her voice quivered. Hazelwood. He looked back at the bear in the envelope. Bags, ma'am? Nothing. He opened the back passenger door and Mary Ellen reluctantly got inside. She settled against the cold vinyl seat amidst the smell of spent cigarettes. Again, she contemplated contacting the police. The station lobby was only minutes away. The driver closed the door, shifted, and quickly moved around in a semicircle. Mary Ellen's hand shook as she peered out the side window, and the air conditioner blasted a stream of cool air from the dash vents. She checked along the fence and into the parking lot for the Mustang, or the van that Kell had talked about in Delaware. She wished that Kel were here right now. In the darkness along the side road, she kept praying the kids would be all right. A few streetlights flashed into the car as the downtown buildings slowly moved by, and the driver followed a pickup truck along the main road. The truck signaled and turned. Cabby talked about the hot weather in September as he continued toward the beach. Again, she wanted to call the police. She picked up the envelope and opened the clasp. Between the alternating streetlight flashes, she stared at the gray envelope. Maybe they were already dead. She pinched the bridge of her nose and then tightened her fist as she tried not to think about it. Sue Lee would not kill them without taking the money, but Mary Ellen couldn't have access to any money until morning. Images of her children playing on the beach when they were younger haunted her as the driver near the wooded hills around Hazleton. Where in Hazleton, ma'am? Number 16, Durango. She opened the wrinkled envelope and read the letter. My dearest Mary Ellen, your kids are alive. Have a half a million dollars ready before dawn at the beach house or they're dead. No cops. My best friend. What was that, ma'am? Nothing. Nothing at all. She repeatedly told herself they could not be dead. The driver entered the wooded hills. Her stomach nodded as the cab pulled up the street and the silhouetted beach house came into view around the corner. Nice house, ma'am. 
Mary Ellen peered through the windshield at the indistinct edges of the massive house. She pictured Tony with the real estate agent last summer. The driver turned around. Can you wait until I get inside? Yes, sure, ma'am. He moved outside and opened the door. She took the panda bear and stepped onto the gravel. Again, she followed the beach house's murky side contours as he leaned inside. Ma'am? Dazed and uncertain, Mary Ellen turned. Yes? He held up the envelope and grinned. You forgot your baggage. Oh, God, thank you. I'll bring you to the front door. Thank you. As he walked up the gravel, she scrutinized the outside bushes and the side lawn toward the beach trail. Her heart finally caught up with her fears, and maybe she had noticed how it had rocked her chest. She stepped cautiously up the brick walk and climbed the two stairs to the front door. Guess I owe you some money. Six bucks for the fare. She pulled a thin wallet from her jeans and retrieved a ten-dollar bill. Keep the change. Thank you, ma'am. I will wait for you until you get inside. You're most kind. She nodded and rifled the wallet for the spare key. The taxi headlights allowed her just enough light to see the chrome lock. Her hand shook as she clumsily inserted the key. With a forceful twist, the lock popped and the door opened slowly into the downstairs foyer. The car headlights projected through the upper windows and cast sparkling shadows from the upper chandelier onto the wall. She pushed the button and the chandelier light blazed toward the upstairs bedrooms. Are you all set, ma'am? Yes. You have a good night now. He nodded and turned. She was tempted to chase the man, whom she did not know, and hold him. He looked back from the open taxi door and then got inside. Tears formed in her eyes. She wanted her husband and children back in the house. The taxi moved around the gravel and onto the road. She followed his taillights down the road and through the branches. The car engine faded into the sound of crickets chirping, and the surf behind the house cracked with each approaching breaker. The moon had not yet risen and the yard loomed within a myriad of shadows, tantalizing her already frayed imagination. She flipped on the outside spotlights and the bright green grass brightened. Even in the shadows, the unseen web of bushes along the house were dotted with bright flowers. The ocean sands were white. She kicked the front door shut and immediately turned the lock. Then she darted across the foyer and smacked each light switch, illuminating the extensive kitchen, and then she raced forward. Seconds later, the entire backyard and the trail toward the beach brightened. She grabbed the wood pole wedged between the sliders and turned toward the cellar stairs. Sue Lee could not enter the house with the new locks installed on every outside door, yet Mary Ellen could take nothing for granted now. She opened the cellar door and also turned on every light switch on the downstairs panel. The gray wall stretched out before her and she slowly moved down the wood stairs as piles of boxes and old lawn furniture materialized to her left. In a slow, methodical march, she rounded the perimeter and stopped at the latched metal bulkhead doors. The outside breezes rattled the doors, and she heard the surf down at the beach. How many hours would she have to wait for her kids? She scampered up the cellar stairs but left the lights on as she entered the kitchen. Again, she checked the first floor as if she were taking a quick series of photographs, but her eyes focused on the sweeping stairway banister and the spindles to the second floor. If you're in here, come out and give me my kids. She inched her way down the hallway, the wedge pole still in her hand. Can you hear me, Sue Lee? You don't give me my kids and I'll kill you. I'll kill you. She stepped precariously up the foyer stairs and cocked the door wedge pole. Once on the second floor, she lit the hallways and the bedrooms. With her free hand, she ripped open every closet door and scoured the bathrooms and walk-ins. Then she turned on the master bedroom lights. 
Tony's cocky pants, sports shirts, socks, and briefs were neatly spread across the bed. This is sick. You hear me? It's sick. Gritting her teeth, she spun around and rumbled into the walk-in, ready to swing the wedge stick. The other clothes were slotted neatly on two hanging levels, and the shoes lined up on the floor. She rounded the corner into the bedroom. The black sink and the orange soap were undisturbed, but the faint smell of night sin emanated from the tub. No, not in my house. Mary Ellen slipped on the tiles, but quickly crawled under the bedroom rug. She hyperventilated and paused to catch her breath. On the far bedside table, the second phone line's voicemail flashed. As if she had jump-started, she leaped to her feet and took giant steps across the rug. She poked the button, and then the voicemail played. An odd hissing was abruptly transformed into music. You never cared about the night scene. You wanted me to get out unfazed. You should have left me alone. You should have left me alone. And now you're dead. Now you're dead. never cared about the night scene. You wanted me to get out unfazed. You should have left me alone. should have left me alone. And now you're dead. 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 No, you're dead. And where are my kids? She stomped into the hallway overlooking the foyer and gripped the balustrade. Another voice came over the line and she retreated into the bedroom. Her eyes wandered to the stairs, leading from the bedroom to the third floor. Gonna kill you, Sule. Where are my kids? The voicemail beeped. She bent her head and hit the switch with the wedge as she clawed her way up the third floor stairs. You killed my husband! She ran into the playroom and quickly looked into Tony's study. Her eyes caught the tiny, side-attic door and she walked across the blue tiles, but tightened her arms as she slammed the stick into the door. The doorknob was stuck when she tried spinning it. Her teeth bared. She pivoted and bounded down the opposite hallway stairs. She slid around the balustrade and peered down the foyer again. For a second, she paused and wiped the sweat from her brow as she moved deliberately down the first floor stairs. At the front door, she backed up slowly toward the kitchen. The mantel clock neared 10 p.m. and the pendulum swayed steadily. Another seven hours separated her from the first rays of the morning sun in Binghamton Beach. Chapter 27 Kel's stiff back was aggravated from the cram propeller-driven plane he had taken from Washington. Images of the yellow front-end loader, parked in the rocky alcove near the highway, floated through his mind as he dozed on the flight, but he couldn't fully remember how he had landed in the river. He walked stiffly from the cab, his ribs still bruised, and shuffled to the police station door. Hawkins and Butch were in the side office as he moved up to the glass. Hawkins closed his eyes and pinched his brow when he saw Kel, but he looked more sympathetic when he stepped to the window. You all right there, Kelly? Yeah. Mary Ellen Fresco's kids are still missing. She pointed the finger at Sue Lee. We went out there and found Sue Lee in bed, sleeping. I understand that, said Kel, holding the counter with his outstretched hands. You want to sit down? Kel nodded and Hawkins personally pushed the buzzer. Kel opened the door and went inside. 
and Hawkins pulled back a seat. Talked to personnel up in West Virginia. You almost died. I woke up in the hospital. I don't remember anything. But I do remember finding a whole workshop of tools and machinery in Haydenville, Sue Lee's hometown. I told you you'd find something, said Butch. Kelly, same old story. Where's the proof? It's in Sue Lee's father's tool shop, said Kel, settling into the chair. Well, that doesn't mean anything, said Hawkins. Look, Kelly, I'm sorry you got banged up. She did it. You don't know that, replied Hawkins. I'm sure of it. I walked into a hardware store downtown, Haydenville. I have a witness who will corroborate what I've been saying. Sue Lee bought an Aberdeen ladder two weeks ago. There's also car ramps matching Roger Tromley's car ramps in that same store. You're telling me she bought a ladder in her hometown? Asked Hawkins, pulling up a chair. Absolutely. Whoa! What about the tool shed? Asked Butch. Well, I found pipe cutters. You could cut a ladder rung very easily. That's her thing, boys. Murder a married man she's had an affair with and make it look like an accident. Hawkins' thick brow wrinkled and he stroked his chin. Somebody saw her buy an Aberdeen ladder? Yep. Butch's wide brow tightened. Then where the hell's the ladder? Cal shook his head. Damned if I know. But I do know. Somebody lifted those ramps out of my car in Delaware. The machine shop had a hundred tools that could be used to weaken the ramps. Listen, I think she took Mary Ellen's kids. Why? Give me one good reason. Give me a good reason why, if she was home asleep. It's not out of the question to drive from the Berkshires to Binghamton Beach in less than nine hours. Hey, the car was cold, said Butch. Stone cold. Hadn't gone anywhere. What about the maroon van? asked Kel. Hawkins pursed his lip and then turned to Butch. All right, all right, Butchie, see if she owns any other vehicles. And call Braden in Massachusetts. For the first time, he thought Hawkins believed him. Just find out what they think about the kidnapping. I love those kids, like they were my very own. I'm sending somebody out to watch that condo, said Hawkins as he quickly disappeared out back. Butch typed something into the keyboard and then leaned forward in front of the computer screen. You know, Kelly, I owe you an apology. We both do. Let's just find the kids. Kel leaned back in the chair until his ribs were comfortable. By using the maroon van, she could have easily transported the children. But he wasn't sure just where she would bring them. Nor was it clear why the children would agree to go anywhere with her. He needed to speak with Mary Ellen. Now here's the phone, Butch. Sure, go ahead. Kel dragged the phone across the desk and removed his little notebook from his shirt pocket. Without his reading glasses, he had difficulty seeing the number, but he managed to hold the notebook out and dial Mary Ellen's sister's number. The line rang as Hawkins rounded the corner. I've got a cruiser heading out to watch that condo. Who are you calling, Kelly? Mary Ellen. She was sleeping when I called a few hours ago. Hello? Said a weakened female voice. Yes, this is Walter Kelly. Mr. Kelly, my sister is missing. Her voice was charged. Wait a minute. I thought she was sleeping. He sat upright in the chair. How can she be gone? We just went in to check on her and she was gone. What happened? asked Hawkins. Mary Ellen Fresco is missing, said Cal, covering the receiver. We've had the whole town out looking. Just like the kids. My God, I can't take much more. Well, she has to be around there somewhere. She probably went out looking for the kids. We're checking out things down here. 
Binghamton Beach. They should bring Sue Lee in for questioning. I'll agree to that, said Cal. We'll find out what happened. Mary Ellen is okay. I know she is. She probably just stepped out to look for the kids. I wish I could believe you. Call the police station here at Binghamton Beach when she comes in. I will. The line clicked and Kel shook his head. Now where the hell is she? Hey, Chief, take a look at this, said Butch. Hawkins gawked at Kel. He moved forward and leaned over the screen. Well, isn't this interesting? Kel gripped the desk and winced as he forced himself up. What did you find? Van doesn't belong to her, said Butch. Kel balanced himself on the desk and walked upright toward the computer screen. Butch kicked out the chair. On the screen, in bright green letters, he saw the readout. 1997 Chevrolet Maroon Serial. Never mind the serial. Plate 38D29. Ronald Zwam Lee, the brother. 67 McAllister Street, Annapolis, Maryland. So, we have an accomplice, said Kel. You'd better call the Annapolis boys, Hawk. Well, that explains the cold car, said Hawkins. Maybe he's the killer. She just got the ladder for him. Kel shook his head. No, she's the one who had the relationships with the murdered men. So what? asked Hawkins as he picked up the phone. Suppose this guy is a psycho, sees his sister with somebody and sets up the guy to be killed. Kel shook his head. The only thing I know is that van was in Delaware and somebody took the ramps from my car. She could have been driving it, or he could have helped her from getting nailed. We have no proof that Ronald Lee has done anything here. Hawkins immediately placed the call to the Annapolis police. Kel walked over to the window overlooking the lights along the beach. He worried about Mary Ellen. Ronald Lee, if he was in the Bradenton area, easily could have taken her away. As Hawkins explained the situation to some sergeant in Annapolis, Cal stroked his chin and leaned against the glass. The front end loader flashed into his mind and he was upside down in the Escalade. He turned from the window. Hawkins was still on the phone as Butch tapped the keyboard. Somebody had scooped up the car and deposited him and the car over the riverbank. He strained to remember, but he pushed his memory to the limit. Hey, this is interesting said Butch, briefly looking up. The car belonged to the father, Zwamli. Apparently the guy died five years ago, and Ronald Lee got the van. Who the hell is this guy? Tony Fresco told me he had a discussion with Sue Lee about getting some software for the guy's roommate. We'll let Annapolis figure that out, said Hawkins, setting down the phone. Now this is getting very interesting. I'd like to know how that father died, said Butch. Kel nodded. Then Ron Lee must be still up in the Berkshires if he got Mary Ellen. She must know, said Butch. Sue Lee? asked Hawkins. Right. She must know something if she bought the ladder. Kel slowly sat in the seat. I still think she did it. She killed Tony and the rest of them. I don't know what happened in Massachusetts or in Haydenville. You need to bring her in here, Hawk. Hawkins nodded. You're damn right, Kelly. You're damn right. Mary Ellen is distraught with her kids missing. But Kel, even after he has located hundreds of tools that could have cut Tony's ladder or the car ramps, is attacked in his car and his car is almost pushed into the river. Mary Ellen returns to Binghamton Beach with ransom notes for a half million dollars. Mary Ellen believes that Sue Lee has kidnapped Danny. She returns to Binghamton Beach and the beach house only to be told that an attempt has been made on Kel's life. The stage is set, ladies and gentlemen, for the finale. Episode 5, next week on Fittin' on the Air. 
I'm Robert P. Fitton, circling over Binghamton Beach, searching for the killer. See you next time. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.com.